Good morning and thanks for joining us. We are on part two of a message that we started last weekend on the temple of God. And this is the final message in a series that we're doing on God and me. The idea is God has a very deep interest on you understanding your true identity. He is your creator. He's the one who has made you. He has a deep interest in you understanding that and understanding your true self. And through this series, we're coming to God and asking Him to repair any sense of false identity and helping us to live into our true selves. Temple of God theology is all about God entering our space, entering creation, and being with us, being with his people. And Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of all of that temple intention from God. Jesus is God with us. And as the Old Testament temple was a place where people uh, imagined forgiveness and acted out sacrifices before God, in Jesus, the ultimate forgiveness of God was worked out as he took on the problems of sin and death went to the cross and provided a way for all of humanity to be forgiven and set free. Now, after Jesus went to the cross and rose again on the third day, he gave his church a new sense of purpose and identity. If you are a Christian, if you follow after Jesus, your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. In you, people will see the work of God. And so God is very concerned about what you eat, what you drink, how you imagine your movements throughout the day, how you live, your words and your actions. He's even concerned about how you conduct your sex life, your married life, your one flesh relationship with your spouse. All of these things are taken up in a new sense of ethics that come from God and come from our identity as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, today we continue in part two with this message and we're going to make a little shift in the way we talk about identity because so far we've been talking about in a personal sense, personal identity, and God is very concerned about that, but he is also concerned about how we think about ourselves corporately and temple theology definitely shapes our sense of corporate or group identity. This is an important conversation to be having right now because there are so many voices in media and in politics and that are telling us who we are, where we belong, and then therefore how we should think and act and vote. And this is a message that that comes from both sides of the spectrum, both left and right love to play off of identity. But we have an identity and we have one who is more authoritative in this process than either political party. We follow after Jesus. We follow after our creator God who has made us and has the final authority on who you truly are. And he tells us, seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and all of these things will be added unto you. So this is how we're going to talk about it today. We're going to read from a passage in 2 Peter that talks about this corporate identity, and we'll talk about three implications that come out of it, how we should live in light of this identity. Let's dive right into 2 Peter. 
As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. The main idea here is that the temple of God was how the church should understand itself. But rather than a stone building, the church was made up of living stones. It was the actions and the words and the embodiment of love that people would now see God. It was in our lives and in our bodies. The cornerstone upon which everything was built was Jesus. He was rejected by the religious elites, hated and crucified, but through Jesus, God had built a new temple. You know, this past week, I was looking for an image that would help inspire us to think about ourselves as the church being the temple of God. Uh, not the church building and, and getting away from architectural type of images because they, they, they don't really inspire us quite the same way. Uh, not in the way that Peter is offering here. What Peter is saying is that you are living stones. It's our living bodies. Our bodies are how people will see the work of God. Now, Peter goes on to make a transition here. He talks about not only the church being the temple of God, made of living stones, he talks about us being the royal priesthood that serves at the temple. And it's here in this uh, next section that we find three implications for how we should live and how we should conduct ourselves in light of this theology, in light of temple of God theology. To be sure, there are more than three ideas here. Some of it we already covered earlier in our series, but there are three that I just want to point out because they are very significant for our moment today. And the first is this, together, we are a holy nation. Together, we are a holy nation. 
you know, there's some of you who are listening today and you might hear the word holy and it's kind of a turnoff for you because maybe you grew up in a more repressive religious environment where being holy meant uh, a lot of rules about how you conduct your lives. And yeah, sure, in some religious environments, the whole idea of holiness has been taught in a very poor way, without much context, without a sense of the bigger picture. It's important to see the bigger picture because without that, holiness just becomes a set of arbitrary rules. But when we understand at fundamentally that God is holy, then this thing begins to come to life. In scripture, God is described as being holy, holy, holy. And what does that mean? It means that he is pure, that he's perfect, that he's set apart. He is not tainted by the sinful world that we live in. He is out to redeem and rescue us. And he is in a category all by himself. And if we want to imagine what perfect holiness is all about, we don't have to look any further than Jesus. Jesus himself embodied perfect holiness. He was the Holy One of God who came down to save us from our mess. Now, when it comes to talking about holiness for our lives, Peter says, be holy because God is holy. Our holiness is a reflection of our lives being modeled after Jesus and his way of life. The second term that's used here is nation. We are a holy nation. And this idea is very different from the ancient world where people in nations belong to their, uh, their national identity because of their ethnicity or because of their geography. That's where they were from. God turns all this upside down in his kingdom. We belong to this holy nation created by Jesus, not because of our race, or our ethnicity, or because of where we live, not because of our social class or our gender. We belong because Jesus made a way through the cross and he welcomes everyone. And he turns everything upside down in terms of priorities. We are not to be known first and foremost because of our race or our geography or our social class. We are known as the people of God. We are known as disciples of Jesus Christ. I find this term holy nation pretty helpful to be meditating on as we head into this election cycle. And it's been a very difficult election cycle because there's been so much rhetoric and so much fighting between the parties. And it feels like both sides are often trying to pull on our sense of identity, defining who we are, who we belong to, and therefore how we should think, act, and vote. I am reminded that I belong to God. I am part of His holy nation. And my hope does not rest on left or right or upon our next president. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. My hope has always been in God, and as a holy nation, our witness as the church will continue long after this process is over. And I want to remind us as a church that you do have the freedom in Christ to make a vote 
based upon your assessment of the situation and upon the Holy Spirit's prompting in your life. Now, there's another word that also helps us understand what this holy nation idea is all about. We are nonconformists. That's the way that Paul puts it in the letter to the Romans. Martin Luther King Jr. has written, As Christians, we must never surrender our supreme loyalty to any time-bound custom or earth-bound idea. For at the heart of our universe is a higher reality, God and his kingdom of love, to which we must be conformed. Years ago, Amy and I were invited to a Christmas party, and it was a Christmas party put on by her old boss. This was back in LA, in California. Uh, Amy worked for a finance company, and at the time, I was a seminary student. I was studying ancient languages, studying scripture. I was serving at the church, leading the college fellowship, and also leading worship on Sundays. And off we were to this Christmas party put on by her uber-wealthy boss. Now, to give you an idea of how wealthy this man was, he was actually the first space astronaut. He paid $20 million to go to the International Space Station to be the first non-astronaut to participate in the space program. And pretty incredible. I remember that night though, going to the Christmas party and being pretty intimidated. We followed the directions on the invitation and as we pulled up to the residence, I literally thought, oh, so they're having the party at a hotel this year. Only it wasn't a hotel, it was the, it was the man's house. And as I walked into the front doors, I felt completely inadequate. Have you ever had a moment where you just feel just overwhelmed with insecurity, not feeling a whole lot of self-importance or self-worth and doubting what you're going to say, doubting your, your very movements and the clothes that you wear? I was definitely having one of those moments of massive insecurity as I entered into that party. Amy was okay, of course, because these were her coworkers. She saw them every day and she, as she had conversations with them, um, I soon realized the worst. I was a conversational dead end at that party. Uh, you know, no matter how hard I tried to make seminary and church worship services sound interesting, nobody really was interested in what I had to say. And as interesting as it was being a Christmas party, uh, we only found one other couple at that whole party full of hundreds of people that also went to church. So this was LA. I know things are different in Texas because you can talk about church and church life uh, and have a bit of resonance because people kind of understand what it's like. But walking into that party, I felt like a complete foreigner with nothing interesting to say. Now, by the end of the night, I went home feeling pretty dejected, pretty worthless. A few days later, I was with a friend and just kind of sharing my experience and feeling like, man, I just totally couldn't fit into that situation. And then my friend asked me a question that has stuck with me to this day. Why did you need to fit in? Simple and very clarifying question. 
I don't know. I don't know why I needed to fit in. Because I certainly wasn't going to seminary in order to fit in or feel impressive at a cocktail party. I wasn't leading worship on a Sunday morning in order to impress other people. I was doing it because God had told me to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I was doing this because I felt a call on, from God to spend my life in this way, not because it impressed other people, because it was meaningful and I was doing the work of God. You know, I think there may be some of us here this morning that just need to hear this message once again, that you belong to God. You are part of his holy nation. You are asked to seek first his kingdom. You don't have to conform to this world. In fact, trying to conform has been leading you to all sorts of anxieties and worries. Your identity isn't wrapped up in what other people say about you. Your identity comes from your creator, your father in heaven, the one who has created your ultimate sense of belonging. Now, the next thing that we do as God's temple and his royal priesthood is that we speak well of God. We declare the praises of him who has rescued us from darkness and brought us into his light. We are storytellers. We are worshipers. We sing about God because God is our savior, our deliverer, our rescuer. He is the one who has done it. We don't save ourselves. God saves us. And we go on to tell the story of God's saving grace. This past week, uh, I found an article by George Barna. You may have heard of his name before because some of his research in the, in the 2000s led to how we shaped and formed our church access. It was revealed through some of his studies that there were a lot of people who were leaving the church at that time and who were not participating in church life. And access was created as a a way to reach those who are no longer attending church. George Barna and his research team came out with a new report this past week, and they were measuring beliefs of the church, both the evangelical church and the mainline church. And one of the things that he discovered really caught my eye, really actually kind of disturbed me. He discovered that 40% of people in the evangelical church believe that a person who is good enough or does enough good works can earn eternal salvation. Now, this isn't the mainline church. This was a statistic discovered of the evangelical church, the church that claims to have the gospel at the center, the church that claims to be tied to biblical teaching. And the discovery was that 48% of their respondents who are part of evangelical churches think that good works are enough to save us. Now, this article doesn't go into a whole lot of analysis. It's just reporting findings from surveys and people who were called up to ask to respond about beliefs. But it's disturbing nonetheless, and it has my wheels turning a lot these days. In fact, I was lamenting about it during our staff meeting on Wednesday. We're just talking about things and talking about the recovery of this practice that's in the 
uh, teaching of Peter, that the church is meant to be a place that declares the praises of the one who rescues us, or the one who saves us, who brings us out of darkness and into light. Pastor Grace was uh, brainstorming out loud and was thinking about maybe adding uh, testimonies back into our Sunday worship gatherings, because that's something that we are definitely missing these days as we're doing this uh, only online. Jessica, likewise, began thinking about other ideas that we can add to our Sunday expression. And this is something that I really want us to be thinking about in the days to come. How can we, as a church, as a holy nation, as a royal priesthood, sing the praises of our Savior, acknowledging that God saves, we don't save ourselves. This is the basic essence of the gospel. How we've lost our way and how evangelical thinkers have begun to diverge from this, I am not sure. Um, I will do more research before I analyze this and before I make more comments upon this. But I do want to double down on this teaching that is from Peter. You know, friends, as the temple of God, as a holy nation, as the royal priesthood, it falls on us, as Peter says, to declare the praises of the one who has saved us and not to declare that we save ourselves. God is our Savior. Amen? The last point that we're going to make today from Peter's letter is this exhortation around doing good. Together, we do good. We are a people who will be known to do good. And because of this good, people will know the goodness of God. And even though they may not agree with us, even though they may dislike us for many reasons, our good works will speak louder than their criticisms. You know, in the early years of Access, we created a nonprofit called Vox Culture. Vox Culture was a neutral platform for people to come together in the city of Houston to do good things. And one of our very first events was a concert and an art show to benefit a local school. Uh, we were gonna raise money to be able to give to the school to buy uniforms for people who couldn't afford uniforms. And that night, we, as we brought people together, there was one particular man who came to serve coffee for us. He wasn't a Christian. He was Muslim in his background. Um, but after working with our volunteers, um, and at that time, every Vox Culture volunteer was an AXIS member because we were one and the same. After working with um, the AXIS volunteers for an evening, he came up to me and he was just glowing with praises because he said he had never worked with such good people before. He was so impressed by people's attitudes and their willingness to serve that he invited me back to his coffee shop for free coffee and just to tell more about my story. It was an amazing time. That evening was full of comments and praises just like that. In the beginning years of Access, good works and good things were our legacy. And I share that story not because it was unusual, but because it was our regular mode of operation. Over the years, that has continued to be what we have been known for. Access people have been known for, for being people who serve and do good works, 
who clean out people's homes after a hurricane, who serve people meals, who help with childcare when they don't have it. Access people are known for good works. Uh, more recently, Pastor John was able to take the initiative to serve a local school, Shadow Oaks Elementary, uh, giving many of the teachers and the staff gift certificates to serve them. He's just continued along this line that's become a core value for our church. And if you haven't heard this core value spoken of again uh, recently, here it is once more just to refresh your memories. We commit ourselves to joyful service. We serve as Jesus taught us to serve, humbly offering our gifts and talents to bless others. The question now is, how might we continue to extend this legacy during the pandemic? You know, now because of COVID-19, many of us are sheltering in place. There are many risks to being out in public or to being with others. And the risk is getting other people sick or maybe family members infected with the virus. And it has become very difficult to think uh, about how we might serve. But it is really in this moment that I really believe that we need to recapture this legacy and capture our core value once again. To be people who do good works, we often fall short in many ways. But one of the things that Peter encourages us to do is to continue doing good things and loving our neighbors by serving and leading and blessing them. And as we end our message today on being a temple of God, I want to encourage you to think about and be creative about how you might serve your neighbors, your family members, the people in your life who don't know God personally, but do know you and who see your hands and your feet at work. How might, how might we be a blessing to their lives and offer them a good testimony about God. And today, as we wrap up our series on God and me and this whole topic of identity, I want to offer you one final word of encouragement. Because talking about identity is not a quick fix. It's not something that we can actually finish in a short series. It's a lifelong kind of relationship that we have with God. As we learn to come to Him with our questions about who we truly ultimately are and what our true selves are all about. But I want to encourage you, if this is not something that you regularly engage in, if you do not know God in this capacity, check out our small groups, uh, join a formation group, or maybe join faith walking. Get yourself involved in this way. Because having this type of connection with God can be the most life-giving thing you will ever experience. Now as we wrap up, I want to close in some silent prayers that you can pray on your own and invite you to have this moment of reflection, this final reflection with God over our identities.
loving God through all our years. Let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus, amen.